Well, let's open in a word of prayer and then we'll get through chapter one tonight. Father, we thank you for each one that's come out tonight and pray that you would open our hearts to your word and just uh, with the power of your Holy Spirit that you would just illuminate our mind, our eyes, that we'd be able to apply the words we see on the written page to our own lives. And we thank you for your inspired word. And Lord, we do pray for all the upheaval that's going on tonight in uh, cities across our nation and pray for these two police officers in Louisville that were shot and just pray that you would uh, protect their lives and uh, help them to make a full recovery. And Lord, we just pray for those in authority. You give them wisdom as they um, deal with all this chaos. And we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we're in uh, Habakkuk, uh, chapter 1. I'm just going to read the chapter for us. And then last week we just kind of did a general introduction to it and uh, talked a little bit about the prophet himself. And tonight we'll get more into the text of chapter 1. So you can follow along in your Bibles as I read Habakkuk, chapter 1. It starts off, the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me, strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, or the Babylonians, um, that bitter and hasty nation who march through a breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce Then the evening wolves, their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle or a vulture, uh, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on, guilty men whose own might is their God. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die, O Lord. You have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent? When the wicked swallows up, the man more righteous than he. You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out of his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them, he lives in luxury. And his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? Uh, Last week we (laughs) looked at a little outline there. It's faith tested, chapter 1. Faith taught, chapter 2. And faith triumphant, chapter 3. And we're kind of following Habakkuk um, through this book. And he 
progresses as he goes. So we see him making an argument in chapter 1. Um, we see God's answer in chapter 2, and then uh, his acceptance, basically, in chapter 3. He's asking, waiting, praying um, accordingly. But, you know, ask yourself this question. What do you do when you prayed for something to God, and you don't like the answer that you have received? Um, Maybe you applied for a certain college or your dreams, and you found out that you didn't make it, or you wanted to get interviewed for a certain job. It's been your life goal, and they found somebody else that's more qualified, or maybe asked God for a physical healing, possibly. But the doctor said, well, sorry, the chemo doesn't work on your kind of cancer. Um, or, you know, a very a variety of things you can go to, right? I mean, in our own personal life. We've all been there. We've all taken our needs, our requests before God, thinking we're doing the right thing, and um, only to not have our prayers answered, at least not answered in the way that we anticipated. And, um, you know, we make our plans, we have our dreams and all that stuff, and you sincerely try to do God's will, you pray about it, and the answer comes. It's not the answer you wanted. <laughs> and so you have to stop and you have to say, what do you do at that point with your faith? What do you do? And I think if you live long enough, you'll discover that God's plans usually don't line up <laughs> with our plans, right? I mean, we have something in our mind and God has something totally, completely different. And uh, we all understand, Matthew tells us, that we should, the Lord... Um, told us, instructed us, we should pray that what? Your will be done right on earth. So it's not necessarily about our will, um, but it still, I think, affects us personally when we're diligent in prayer, we're diligent in obeying the Lord and everything, but we discover one day that God has a completely different plan. It's just out of the blue. That's where Habakkuk's at. Um, He's faithfully coming before the Lord and he doesn't like the answer that he received. And we talked a little bit about this last week. But first of all, he thought that, he was, that God was ignoring Judah's sin. And we'll see that tonight a little bit. And then secondly, he thought that God would never use a nation like Babylon or the Chaldeans to judge Judah. That just seems way, way over the top. God, what are you doing? That's not right. And yet, as a prophet of God, um, on that call, he was, his, his thoughts were wrong. They didn't line up with God's plan. And so what do you do when God doesn't live up to your expectations? How do you respond when the Lord's answer isn't what you wanted? And, you know, Habakkuk was troubled by something that troubles all of us. Uh, He couldn't reconcile his view of God. And when he looked around, he saw all the injustice and all the evil around him. He thought, this this doesn't make any sense, God. and it boils down to one thing, that God was raising up the Babylonians, and they were coming, and basically Habakkuk couldn't do anything to stop it. And so uh, we know from history, when they even reached Jerusalem, right, they conquered Jerusalem, they took all the Jews captive and held it, destroyed the city and held them for um, 70 years. So it's, it's, it's a very um, wicked nation that God uses in this instance. And so he, he objects to God in, in the text here. You know, how can you do this, God? And that's the key, really, to understanding this book. It's, it's a dialogue between a frustrated man of God 
and a holy God who's got a plan and sticks by his plan. And sometimes we cannot understand the plans that God has. Um, you know, the, the book isn't about really even Judah and their sin. It's not really even about that. I mean, it's mentioned, obviously. It's not about Babylon and Babylon and how evil they were as a nation. It's not about that. It's not even about Habakkuk's doubts when he gets the answer that God gives him and he's kind of doubting, wait a minute, is this right? It's not even about that. This whole book is about the very issue of God. That's where the focus has to go. And when you stop and think about it, in life we all end up there eventually anyway, right? We all end up back to the one who's the giver of life. Um, All of our questions lead back to God because he's the one, the only one, that we ultimately have to deal with. And it seems like even the smallest little issues in our life lead us back to the one who sits on the throne of the universe. And so tonight, as we go through chapter 1, kind of verse by verse, we just want to give you the outlines there. It's got a lot of points to it, but it's a pretty basic outline. And the first thing we see in verses after he introduces himself, the oracle that that Habakkuk, the the prophet, saw. And so, um, remember, this is a dialogue, right, between Habakkuk and God. But we see in the first couple of verses here the reaction of the prophet. Um, what was his reaction to the, the corruption of his time? Well, first of all, in verse 2, he points out, he says, Oh, Lord, how long shall I cry? And last week we said that that's mentioned upwards of 65 times in the, in the Old Testament, that word alone, how the, that phrase, how long. And uh, usually it's expressing anxiety over God's dealings in bringing justice. <clears throat> and so uh, his patience here was being tested. His cries weren't being heard, and his patience was being tested. How long shall I cry for help? You can just hear the anxiety in the phrase, how long shall I cry for help? Um, and you will not hear. And I'm sure we've all been there at, at certain points in our life, but that's what the Bible explains to us over in the book of James, right? That sometimes God doesn't give us what we want necessarily because he's doing a work in and through us. He's in one of the works is um, James chapter one, verse two, it says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, that has an idea of um, trials that are not, you know, oh, I stubbed my toe as I was going out to the car. It's not talking about that. It's, it's talking about cage-rattling trials, trials that turn your, your life upside down, and they're coming from all angles, okay? He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Verse 3, for you know that the testing of your p- faith produces steadfastness, or patience is the word. Um, and let patience have its full effect so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And so, sometimes our cries are not heard because God is testing our patience. He's putting us to the test. He's saying, hey, you have to trust in me. I'm not just going to answer your, your, your prayer just because you prayed it. Sometimes he delays for that very purpose. But then, 
Secondly, you see here the problem of unanswered prayer, and it was really serious because there was violence involved. He says, or cry to you violence and you will not save. This can't even, he can't even fathom this, Habakkuk. Look, you see people being violated all over the place. There's violence going on, destruction, everything. And you know what? You're not doing anything about it, God. That's a problem. And I'm praying about it, but I still don't see you doing anything. And it reminds me, in Isaiah chapter 59, verses 1 and 2, Isaiah the prophet writes this, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, or his ear dull, that it cannot hear. In other words, the problem's not on God's side. <laughs> That's what the prophet's saying. He says, But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he cannot, that he does not hear. Um, and when you, when you think about unanswered prayer sometimes it's a result of our own rebelliousness our own sinfulness Um, and in other times it's god testing our patience by the way that word violence that we see there that's used about i think it's five times five or six times in the book itself it's used over and over again and, and it speaks of the same kind of violence it's the same word that we see in uh genesis 6 verse 11 when it talks about before the flood, the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled, it says, with violence. I mean, just pick up the newspaper, right? Turn on the news. I mean, the earth right now in the United States is filled with violence. There's a lot of violence going on out there. Um, and so that's, that's part of the, the, the idea here that his, his prayers um, were not being, being answered. But then in verses 3 and 4, we... we we notice that his concerns increased even more. He talks about the abundance of wickedness that's seen there in verse 3. He says, why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Um, in other words, it's all over the place. He says, destruction and violence are before me. You can't help but see it. Um, there's an abundance of it. Um, you know, it's funny, sometimes people put their heads in the sand. They don't want to look and know what's going on in the world because it is so violent, right? We don't want to see it. The news shields us from stuff, you know. Uh, they won't allow us to see what goes on. Well, there's an abundance of wickedness clearly seen, but also there's an attitude here, and it says that strife and contention are on the rise uh there's these are attitudes that are consistently growing they're they're bubbling to the surface you might say and this is what habakkuk is seeing all around him and that's why he's looking at god saying hey aren't you going to do something and then verse four it points out another thing that's very parallel to our world today it talks about the abuse of law is obvious he says so the law is paralyzed the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. I mean, it's, it's very frustrating today when you see all the, just the simple crimes that are being committed, okay, um, in some of these cities, and the police write them a little ticket. They don't get a fine, they just get to go away. <laughs> and what do they do? They go back and start another fire. They go back and assault somebody else. It's, it's just, it's not right. 
You know, there's, a, there's an abuse of the law. We see that in the abuse of, of our, our police forces today. I mean, can you imagine being a policeman and having somebody stand right in your face, call you every name in the book, and taunt you? Not for just once or twice, but continuously. I mean, I'd be in prison. <laughs> if I was, can I just, there's a good reason why I'm not a cop. I, I couldn't handle it. I would lose my mind, and that person would no longer be with us. And I'd probably be arrested and go to jail. All right? But you think of the restraint that they have to show. And then the next point here, the absence of justice for the righteous is spreading. It says, for the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. You know, it's not, it's not fair that a business owner who's going to lose his home if he doesn't open his business, opens his business, and he gets thrown in jail. But they're letting prisoners out of jail because of the COVID. It just doesn't make any sense. Right? I mean, you, you couldn't write this script. It just does not make any sense whatsoever. What's right is wrong, and what's wrong is right. There's a, there's a perversion of justice, an absence of it, really. And so... We see here, from the very beginning, this reaction that he had. But now let's look at the response of uh, God to the prophet's reaction. Um, Verses 5 to 11. Because here, God responds to Habakkuk. And um, the first thing we see is the difficulty Habakkuk has in understanding what God will do. He can't comprehend it. Um, verse 5, he says there very clearly, Look among the nations and see wonder and be astounded. He says, For I am doing a work in your days that you will not believe, even if I told you. You know, uh, we hear that sometimes. You wouldn't believe it if I told you. We say that sometimes, right? So first he calls them to behold what is going on in the world around him. And, and when you look around, you see all the sin, you see all the violence, you see all the upheaval going on in Judah back in Habak- uh, uh, Habakkuk's time. And even around our world today, you see all this stuff going on. It demonstrates what? It demonstrates a need for God to implement his work and his plan. Right? I mean, there's no way this is just going to be an easy fix. And so that's why he says, look around and behold... Everything that's going on. And then he tells him, not just behold what's going on, he says, but believe what I'm going to do, and it's not going to be easy. That's what God basically tells Habakkuk. He says, for I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe if I even told you. Now, remember, it's 605 B.C. Uh, Judah was in a terrible mess. There's idolatry. There's sin everywhere. Um, You think that they would have learned their lesson because God had to judge the northern kingdom. And remember, Assyria was just uh, was defeated in, in 612 B.C. by the Babylonians. And then Egypt stepped into that vacuum and brought in all their idolatry and everything. And you only have seven years between 612 and 605 B.C. And God says, you're not going to believe what I'm about to do. You're not going to believe it. And right around the time this was being written, you had a battle 
the, the Battle of uh, Carchemish is what the title of it was. And it was fought around 605 B.C., history tells us. And it was between the armies of Egypt that kind of allied themselves with the Assyrian Empire. And they fought against the Babylonian Empire, which was allied with the Medes and the Persians and the Scythians. And the the Babylonian side won. (laughs) And then in 586 they're going to come and they're going to burn Jerusalem, Babylon is, to the ground, and that's when they're going to take all the Jews captive for 70 years. And so Habakkuk doesn't know all this stuff is going to happen. That's why God says, you're not going to believe. You think it's bad now. Wait, you're not going to believe what I'm, what's coming down the pike. And I don't know where you were on 9-11, but if you think back on 9-11... I remember it was early in the morning. got a phone call from a friend down in Southern California. Can you turn on your TV? I'm like, okay, what's going on, you know? And you see the tower there with a hole in it and the, the smoke coming out of it. It's like, what happened? You know, I'm asking, oh, a plane hit the tower. I'm like, wow, that's crazy. And while I'm standing there, the other plane. And it, you're just shocked. You're like, what is going on, right? Several minutes later, one goes into the Pentagon. And you're like, is this really happening? You know, you're just blown away. You know, if the week before 9-11, I would have told you, hey, you know what? <laughs> Next week, man, they're, they're going to bring those towers down. It's going to be dust. Thousands of people. You're, you're nuts. It's not going to happen. Not in the United States. I mean, just look back on this year, 2020. If in January, for my New Year's message, I told you, this next year, even though it looks good right now, the economy's doing great, everybody's happy, it's going to be hell on earth. As a matter of fact, it's going to be so bad, there's going to be this virus that's let loose, and it's, it's just going to wrap, 200,000 people in the United States are going to die. And you're going to have to wear a silly mask everywhere you go. And not only that, they're going to close the economy. The whole economy, everything that's thriving right now, they're going to have to shut everything down. They're going to close stores. They're going to close churches. No, no way. That's not going to happen. What have you been drinking? You would not believe me. There's no way you could believe me, right? But look at what's happened. So (laughs) this is what was running through the mind of Habakkuk. You know, he's thinking, okay, well, we we had it bad under uh, these other countries, and now Babylon's come, and and, uh, Egypt's kind of taken over, and, and we're good with that, but now... What are you going to do, God? You're going to bring in Babylon to take out them? Hold on a second. Um, he could not comprehend it. And so he gives a description of the nation that will attack, just to kind of drive the point home. He says, it talks about, first of all, in verses 6 to 7, their rise to power. Look at what it says. For behold, in other words, watch, watch this, Habakkuk. <laughs> I am raising up the Chaldeans or the Babylonians. Who is the I here? God. God is raising this wicked, vile, evil nation up. I mean, Habakkuk's probably sitting there, wait a minute, God. What? Their rise to power was caused by the Lord. And to give you a picture of these people, just look at their character. It calls them bitter and hasty. 
One translation says they're ruthless and impetuous. They're not the nicest people. Um, the way it's going to happen is basically they're just going to come out of nowhere and march through the breadth of the earth. That's the procedure there in verse 6. And they're going to take things, possessions that are not their own. They're going to seize people's property and whatever. They're going to do whatever they want. Why? Because they're prideful. That's what it tells us in verse 7. They're dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth, look, from themselves. They don't care about anybody else. This, this was a very, very wicked people. It's not somebody you'd have afternoon tea with. Um, these are, are, are people that are just, uh, well, historians tell us that it's probably one of the most wicked, vile nations in all of history. They were just so violent and evil. Um, and that's saying a lot, right? But you, you see there, their character, what they're going to be like, um, their rise to power. But then look at the recognition of how quickly they attack. In verse 8, it kind of tells us a little bit about them. It says, their horses are swifter than leopards. Now, obviously, this is hyperbole, right? But it's, it's important that we understand that it's, this is going to happen very quickly. It's going to come out of nowhere, Habakkuk. They're not, even going to know what, they're, they're not even going to know what hit them. More fierce than the evening woods, their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like a vulture is really the word, swift to devour. What I found was an interesting verse in Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 49. Deuteronomy 28, 49. Here's what it says. It says, The Lord will bring a nation against you from far away, from the end of the earth, swooping down like the eagle, a nation whose language you do not understand. That's pretty interesting. I don't think that's a coincidence. But it talks about the devastation they will cause. Have you ever seen a wild wolf? You don't want to mess with a wild wolf, okay? You just go the other way. I mean, you just do not want to mess with them. I mean, you can see it in their eyes. They'll just tear you to pieces let alone, there's usually more than one of them, okay? So they're, they're not fun things. They, they cause major devastation um, if they attack something. It's not, they don't, they don't just do it half-heartedly. And that's their description there. This, this, this nation is going to cause major devastation to Judah under God's guidance, um, it says they're going to travel quite a distance. It says their horsemen shall come from afar. It's almost 600 miles. That's a, I don't know if you've ever been on a horse ride, but to ride 600 miles on a horse, that would be a long horse ride. I mean, you'd have a sore behind when you got off that horse, okay? But they did it, and they did it quickly. And you say, well, why would they, why would they do this? I mean, God rose them up, obviously. It tells us that, but what was their reasoning? Well, verse 9, it says they came for violence. That's what, the only thing this nation knew. Like I said, it was probably one of the most violent nations ever in the history of the world. They, they're really just torturous, barbaric culture. They had no care for anybody but themselves. And you see that in their description. Look at verse 10. It tells us that they, uh, um, or verse 9, it says, all, 
They all come for violence, all their faces forward. I mean, they're fixated on it. They gather captives like sand. Verse 10 tells us a little bit about their reaction to the leaders they run into, the kings and the, the mayors or whoever of the cities they come across. It says, at the kings they scoff and the rulers they laugh. In other words, they just, they don't care. They do not care. Nothing intimidates these people. And you look at the result of their attacks in verse 10. It says, they laugh at every fortress. I'm sure some places thought, oh man, we've got to fortify our city. These people are on the loose. But you know what? Didn't make any difference. It says they pile up earth and take it. It has the idea of a, of a town or city having a big fortress, a wall, okay, built around it. I often thought, I thought, you know, if the wall was on the southern border a solid wall, like a brick wall, it wouldn't be too hard just to pile up a bunch of dirt and just jump over. I mean, that's what they did in Masada, right? They built a big ramp of dirt and they were able to attack the, the fortress. And that's what the idea is. They, they just look at the fortress and go, yeah, just bring a bunch of dirt over here and hop over the fence. It's not a big deal. And they capture it. And the idea is they're going to totally overwhelm you. Nothing can stand in their way. You're not going to believe it. Why are they having so much success in their own mind? It says there at the end of verse 11, they sweep by like the wind and go on, guilty men, and look at how it describes them, whose own might, what, is their God. That's how prideful these people are. This is how evil they were. They, they actually believed that their gods were stronger than the God of Israel. And what God is pointing out is that, but I sent them. <laughs> they think that they're stronger, but I'm the one that activated this whole thing. You know, silly people, they don't even understand that. And so it's, it's a very interesting take on, on what Habakkuk's um, facing. And yet we see a lot of these attitudes. We see a lot of this stuff in our modern day culture. And you finally come down to verse 12. And it's kind of like up to this point, Habakkuk's head is just spinning. He's been faithful to God. He's a prophet of God. He asked God for some help. And God says, okay, here's what I'm going to do. And Habakkuk's going, whoa, wait a minute. What kind of God? Are you a monster? I mean, I'm sure he's thinking all kinds of things about God. You know, it's kind of like when you sit down and you begin to study in depth, like a doctrine like the doctrine of election. Jen and I were talking about this Sunday. When you study it in depth, you're either going to walk away from that doctrine going, man, God is a merciful God. He's a gracious God. He's a loving God. I can't believe he... Or you're going to go, what a monster he is. I mean, who does he think he is? You're going to be shaking your fist at God all day long. All right? And sometimes when God's not answering our prayers, when we're seeing all this stuff around us, and God will just do something. You know, I've, I'm really prayerful about not even so much about the election. I mean, I am. But the one thing that's really heavy on my heart to pray for is the church's reaction 
if the person that we're pushing for doesn't win? What would be our reaction? Will we look at God and say, how could you do that? No, God's got a plan, right? God's got a purpose. I mean, I can't, I couldn't believe that. I don't want to believe that. I don't even want to think about it. But you know what? Our country's been there before. See? And it, it doesn't end there. Um, and so what happens with Habakkuk, he's, he's starting through all these feelings. He's having this dialogue with God going back and forth. And then all of a sudden, it's kind of like he settles in and he, waits, he, he stops. And he says, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I want to recognize the character and the plan of God. I have to stop and I have to go back to what I've been taught in my theology about the God that I'm serving. And so he turns all his emotions and he, he filters it through his theology about God. And we, we're all called to do that. You know, I mean, think of the, most, the worst possible thing that could happen to you. Maybe a loved one die or whatever. You get a death sentence for a disease or something. I don't know. Something like that happened. I mean, eventually, it would be my prayer that you would settle back on your knowledge of who God is. And you would have to come back to the point of saying, okay, God knows about this. God knew this was going to happen before it ever happened. And as much as I don't like what's happening or what happened, I can't shake my fist at God. See, this is a a pattern that we all need to learn from Habakkuk when we have questions about why God is allowing certain things to happen in our lives and even in the world around us. Um, You know, people think, oh, you know, God's lost control of everything. Look at everything. It's chaos. No, he hasn't. God's up there going, hey, relax. I got a plan. And it's, I'm carrying out my plan. And you whining about it, it's not going to change it. So just stop. I already have a plan. God is in control. He's the sovereign of the universe. Um, that's why he starts off here and he says, Are you not from everlasting? Are you not from everlasting? You know, I I think sometimes we think our plans are better than God's. You know, it's not going to (laughs) matter in all eternity whether you're an Arminian or a Calvinist. It's not going to matter. Why? Because God's got a plan. It doesn't really matter what you think. God's got a plan. It's not going to matter, you know, whether you think you're going to get punched out of here before the tribulation, or you're going to have to go through, I don't know why you'd want to go through the tribulation. I mean, some people almost, they talk about tribulation like it's something they look forward to. And their theology teaches that they're not raptured out, but they actually have to stay here and go through it, which, to me, destroys the illustration of Noah and the ark and everything else that talks about a pre-tribulation rapture. I mean, they must not read their Bibles very clearly. I mean, the, the tribulation... Beloved, it's going to be one of the most horrendous, terrible times on planet Earth for seven years. I mean, over half of the world's population will die before it's even half over. Think about that. 
And we're whining about 200,000 people in our country. That's a lot of people. Don't get me wrong. But at the same time, the tribulation is going to make that look like nothing. It's going to be the most terrible holocaust of terror that ever hit the planet. So if you want to believe you're going to go through it, hey, have at it. But, you know, this is what he's trying to show Habakkuk. You're not going to believe what I'm going to do. I don't think we're going to even be able to understand what's going to happen during those seven years. The Bible says every city will fall. Every mountain and island will be moved out of its place. And I think he will do exactly as he says because he's a God that's true. And so when the wheels are falling off the cart and everything is in disarray, what, what is God speaking to our heart? God's speaking to our heart, I've already got it under control. Relax. Relax. Your job is not to worry about all these things. Your job is to what? Is to trust in me. <clears throat> and trust in me because I am a God and I will do the right thing always. I'm never going to make a mistake. I'm perfectly holy in every way, all-powerful. Genesis 18.25, Abraham asked this question, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? <laughs> I mean, who are we to shake our fist at God and say, how dare you? And that's probably what Habakkuk's thinking. First it was Egypt, then Syria, now Babylon. Man, what's going on? And there's a, there's a definite break here in the Hebrew text between verse 11 and verse 12. And so he, he switches, and it's kind of like he takes a deep breath, and he says, oh, wait a minute, what am I fretting about? I remember who I'm serving. And he proclaims the eternal nature of God. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? He may have gotten that from Isaiah 40, verse 28, where Isaiah says, Have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth? He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. I was talking to a young man earlier this week in a Bible study. We were talking about love of God. We were talking about election. We are talking about all these things. And he kept on saying, but logically it doesn't make sense. And he just kept on saying, I know. Welcome to the club. I said, you're never going to figure it out. So just give up. Just accept it. I mean, we have to do that sometimes, right? We have, to under, we have to accept certain things that both are true. If I asked you who wrote the Bible, you'd say, well, well you know, Habakkuk wrote this, John wrote them. Well, yeah, but, well, no, God wrote it. Well, who wrote it, man or God? Well, both. Both. Paul says, you know, when you live your Christian life, how do you do that? Well, I do it through, the, through the, the power of Christ, right? I mean, he, he allows me to, gives me the power to do that. But Paul even struggled in this area, right? He said, well, it's, it's me, but it's really not me. It's, it's Christ, but, but it's not Christ, it's me, right? He goes back and forth. It's both. So when you ask the question, well, when people are saved, do they choose to be saved? Or are they chosen to be saved? The answer is yes. 
Well, it can't be both. Yeah, it can. In the mind of God, it can. You know, we want everything to be so neat and packaged up. And sometimes God says, no, I'm not going to allow that. Because if I allowed me to be put in a little box of your understanding, I'd have to be a tiny little God. And guess what? I'm not. I'm so much further. My ways are so far above your way. You can't even comprehend it. Even if I told you how it worked, you wouldn't understand it. Because his, his understanding is unsearchable. And so Habakkuk stops and he realizes, wait a minute, I'm, I'm serving the eternal God. He's everlasting. He's, he, he must have things under control. And that, by the way, he also speaks of his immutability or his un, un, unchangeableness. That God doesn't change. God is the same God as he always has been. Um, secondly here, he not only proclaims the eternal nature of God, but in verse 12 also we see, he says, we shall not die. <laughs> see where he puts that in at the end? I'm holding on to your promise, God. What's the back he's doing? He's proving that he, he believes God's promises. What's the promise here? The promise of, really, Israel's survival. Remember, we're talking about the nation of Judah, the Israeli people. You know, God promises his people, the nation of Israel, that they will survive. Unfortunately, there's a doctrine going around, replacement theology, that says, no, 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 Israel compromised itself when it disobeyed God, and so God wrote them off, and now the church has replaced Israel. Now, all the promises that were to Israel now belong to the church, so it doesn't matter what Israel, who cares about Israel? Well, how's that working for the countries that look on Israel with disdain or, or threaten Israel? Do you ever wonder about that? Look at some of the countries that are constantly threatening Israel. Some of these Arab nations. Look at the quality of life that they have. It's not too good. All right? It's just not too good at all. Why? Because the Bible says those who, what? Bless Israel will be blessed. Those who curse Israel will be cursed. I want to be on the side of God's blessing. So there's a promise of Israel's survival here, but there's also a, a promise of Israel's suffering. He says, oh Lord, you have ordained them, this nation, this wicked nation, as a judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. In other words, this isn't going to be fun, God, but you know what? At least we're going to make it. We're going to survive. And as believers, you know what? God never promises us a happy meal every day you know, a bed of roses. Jesus promised us just the opposite, did he not? I mean, he said, you will suffer. Without a doubt, you're going to suffer if you're going to follow me. It's not going to be such a, a wonderful time all the time. Now, we have the promise that, you know what, we're going to persevere through that suffering. We're going to come out the other side a lot better than we were when we went in because we'll be with our Lord. But we have to be reminded of that. Um, I was re reminded of Jeremiah chapter 30, verses 7 to 11. It talks about um, the day of Israel's or Jacob's trouble. And speaking of Israel, it says, That day is so great that there is none like it, in verse 7. It is a time of distress for Jacob, and he shall not be saved out of it. 
yet he shall be saved out of it. And it shall come to pass in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from off your, off your neck, and I will burst your bonds, and foreigners shall no more make a servant of him. Verse 9, But they shall serve the Lord their God, and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. Verse 10, Then fear not, O Jacob, my servant, declares the Lord, nor be dismayed, O Israel, for behold, I will save you from far away, and your offspring from the land of their captivity. Jacob shall return and have quiet and ease, and none shall make him afraid. I mean, that's really been lived out, right, with the nation of Israel. They're not really afraid of anybody anymore. For I am with you to save you, declares the Lord. Verse 11, I will make a full end of all the nations among whom I scattered you. In other words, those that come against you, they're going to come to an end. But he says, but of you I will not make a full end. I will discipline you in just measure, and I will by no means leave you unpunished. In other words, you step out of line, you're going to feel it, but you're going to make it. You're going to be preserved. And I think that that's a very, very important point. That's one of God's promises that we need to hold on to because it directly relates to our own eternal security. And then in verses 13 to 17 here, he ponders why God allows the wicked to prosper and escape, apparently, his judging hand, at least in a temporary time. He says there in verse 13, he talks about God's purity or his holiness. Remember, he's reflecting on God. He's, he's, he's done trying to do all these mental games, thinking, why is God doing this? Why is God doing this? He's saying, no, you know what? I know God is pure. I know God is holy. He says, you are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. He also refers to the problems that he faced. He says, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? In other words, God, I don't understand how you're so pure, and yet you know, I'm seeing all these problems and nothing's being done about them yet. And he boils it down to two things here. The toleration of the wicked is one. Did you ever grow impatient with God in his dealings with the wicked? Do you ever look at what's going on, all the wickedness and all the evil, and you just want to say, God, just go get them. Just like a bolt of fire come out of heaven, and boom, that's it. Game over. That's how Habakkuk felt. He says, why do you idly just look at these people? You don't, you're not doing anything. But then he lists the triumph of the wicked and remains silent when the wicked swallows up more... Or, swallows up a man more righteous than he. In other words, it seems like they're winning, doesn't it? Doesn't it? It just seems like they're winning. It's like, what's going to be next? You put it in our, in our time today, and you hear all these charges against all these politicians who have done wrong probably for years in Washington, and they've never been held account. It's like a good old boys club. And I think people are growing tired of it. That's why they elected somebody that wasn't a politician last time. You know, you hear the, the terminology, drain the swamp. I don't think anybody had any idea how deep 
and how mucky and yucky this swamp is. It's not, not so simple. They're finding that out. And Habakkuk really felt the same thing. It's kind of weird at the end here. He refers to all these, these practices of Babylon and, and the, the wicked, and he compares it, of all things, to fishing. <laughs> verse 17, or verse 14, look, he says, and You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook, and he drags them out, out of his net. All right, there, it's just, it's like um, sport to them. You know, this is how, how wicked these people are. And so he rejoices and is glad. They rejoice. It's, it's like a fishing trip for these, this, these Babylonians. Let's go kill some more people. Let's go, let's go catch some more. It's like an ISIS kind of a mentality. You know, the more violence they have, the, the more invigorated they become. They not only rejoice over their catch, they respond by worshiping their ability to catch. It says there in verse 16, Therefore, these evil people, they sacrifice to their net and they make offerings. For by them, he lives in luxury and his food is rich. When I read that verse, I think a lot of times of people who are in the criminal behavior. Or even, even more than that, bring it down a notch, some of these rap stars, I mean, they write these vile songs, just vile songs. I mean, just horrible songs. Degrading women, all, all kinds of nasty stuff. And yet they live in a, you know, they've got a billion dollars in the bank. How does that work? I mean, how does that work? And they pride themselves in that. They live in luxury. Their food is rich. It's like, you know, he's giving the illustration, you know, these, these evil people, they, 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 they respond by catching these innocent people up in their nets and they, they worship their nets because they think that somehow, you know, that's the only God they have, really. And not only that, but the last thing he says here in verse 17, he says, they refuse to stop. It's like, you know, one, 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 one haul isn't enough. Let's go kill some more people. It was like, you know, when ISIS was active and they were going from country to country and just wiping people out. It's like, wow, how bloodthirsty can you be? They refused to stop. It all happened again. Will they keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? See, this is what Habakkuk was faced with. And it, it really is, it parallels what we see every day almost in the news to some degree. And we can become very, uh, very uh, uh, panicked if we don't stop like Habakkuk did and say, well, wait a minute. <laughs> Who's the God I'm serving? Oh, wait, he's the eternal God. He's the holy one. He's holier than anybody. He's definitely all powerful than anybody. He sees exactly what's going on. Not only in my life, but in the whole world. And guess what? His plan and his purpose is being carried out. Nothing has changed. And it will be carried out for all eternity. The, the, the reason I know that to be true, because you go all the way back, all the way back to the Garden of Eden. 
right? You have Adam and Eve living in this perfect garden. I remember we had a lady in our church one time, and she said, you know, I'm really mad at Eve. I said, okay, why? Well, it's because of them that, that we're stuck with sin. And if I, was at, if I was Eve, I wouldn't have done that. It's like, yeah, you would have. No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't do it. I mean, they argued with me. And I said, well, I'll tell you why you would do it. Because in all eternity, even that was in the plan of God. See, we, we think somehow when Adam and Eve sinned, God was in heaven. Whoa, what just, no, oh, you guys, you idiots. What did you do that? You messed everything up. What am I going to do now? Now everything that was perfect, I created everything perfect, and you just goofed it all up. Jesus, go down there and fix that somehow. Do something. Get going, boy. Get down there. Ah, it didn't work that way. The Bible says that even Jesus, in all eternity past, right, was foreordained to do exactly what he did, to die for our sin. Even people like Judas, right? That was in the plan of God. Now, did God make Judas do that? Remember I said sometimes we have tension well, no, because the gospel says that Jesus continually reached out to Judas. Continually. Remember at the Last Supper? What did, what did Jesus say? He's the one that's going to do it. No, he goes, the one that's going to dip in the, you know, with me, he's the one. He gave Judas an option. You don't have to do this. You don't have to do this. Even in the, when he came to arrest him, really, Judas, you're going to, you're going to do this with a kiss? Come on. Giving them, giving them an opportunity. I don't know how that works. Because then the Bible says that that was kind of preordained that Judas do that. But Judas isn't in hell today because God made him do something that he didn't want to do. He did it of his own volition. He did it and will people will be in hell one day because they rejected they turned aside God's free offer of salvation through Christ now we know theologically who are the people that are going to respond those that are elect right we understand that but so you can't carry that over and say well then that's why they're in hell because God elected him to go to hell. Nope, the Bible doesn't teach that. You won't find that in Scripture anywhere. Why are they there? They're there because of their sin. They're there because they rejected a free offer of salvation through Christ. Both are true. That's why the Bible says, whosoever right, confesses, whosoever will come after me, Jesus extends his hand continuously to people. If that weren't true, Jesus' offer of salvation to people people that rejected it, right? You would have to say, well, Jesus wasn't being sincere. It was just a shell game. I mean, he knew the guy wasn't elect, so he wasn't going to go to heaven. So, you know, hey, yeah, yeah, come follow me. I know you're not going to, but yeah, come on. That's not the God we serve. That's not the character. That, that, that implies false motives. That, inf- that inf- implies wrongdoing, right? And we don't serve a God like that. So, in the end, Habakkuk ends up doubling down on his own theology of what he knows God to be, and that's what we need to do. 
Come hell or high water, we have to continue to trust in the God we know to be true. And even though we don't like the outcomes of things, whatever, we have to continue to say, okay, God, this is your plan, it's your purpose, it's your deal, it's not mine. You, you see the, end, the, the beginning from the end and everything in between. So I'm going to continue to trust in you to carry me through this. I hope that's encouraging to you because um, we're going to need encouragement <laughs> to get through these next couple weeks, trust me, or months actually. But well, let me close a word of prayer and then we'll have any questions. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, for your sovereign hand in our lives and in our nation and in the world. And Lord, I pray that we wouldn't cower in fear, but we would realize that you're a all-powerful holy God who's carrying out your purpose and plan for each one of us. And even though sometimes those plans seem to cause chaos in our own lives and cause maybe us to cower in fear sometimes, Lord, I pray that we would um, remind ourselves of the God we're serving, that you are all-powerful, that you are in control, that you don't allow anything to come into the lives of your children other than for the purpose of making them more like Christ. doesn't mean it's all going to feel good and be happy all the time, but Lord, even the suffering we go through has a purpose and a plan. And so, Lord, for that we're thankful. Just pray you would uh, take us on our way safely tonight, take us through the rest of the week, and we continue to pray for our nation as well and uh, the leaders, that you would give them wisdom beyond their own ability. And we thank you and, and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.